there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Univision's Luis Omar Tapia, who's broadcasting the UEFA Champions League for the 26th straight season. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Gio Reyna, Becky Sauerbrunn, and Fabrizio Romano, along with many others. So check those interviews out. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast's growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. Now, here's my interview with Luis Omar Tapia. Our guest now is one of the legends of soccer broadcasting in this part of the world. Luis Omar Tapia of Univision is starting his 26th season calling UEFA Champions League games. It is an absolute pleasure to have him on the podcast. Luis Omar, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Really a lot to talk about, too. Before we get to Champions League, which is starting up again here soon, I I have a couple questions for you about your thoughts on the South American World Cup qualifiers so far. Uh, We're coming out on Monday. We're speaking on Saturday. We've seen match day one. Uh, get completed. Uh, what are your thoughts so far on what we've seen? As you know, it's uh, South America is one of the most difficult qualifying games around the world. And but after viewing um, the first games that it took place in the last couple of days, I think I saw Brazil and Chile uh, being solid, even though Chile lost to Uruguay in Montevideo. But I thought they play better than Uruguay, uh, even though the controversial call on the handball. But I think Brazil and Chile look organized compared to, uh, let's say, Argentina, that I think uh, the midfield, uh, I think it needs to improve a little bit more to support and play closer to Messi. I think Messi somehow during the game he was lost or, or his teammates were lost or uh, sometimes I say that uh, his teammates are, are, are kind of scared to play with Messi and every ball they always give it to him and sometimes he's not in a good position to uh, create space or create a good uh, play for the rest of the guys to score goals. So I think the midfield needs a little attention in Argentina. Um, I th- also, I saw with Uruguay that even though they have some good young talent, I think the defense uh, needs uh, changes. I think uh, it, it's slow. I believe that when they play Argentina, when they play Colombia, when they play uh, uh, Brazil, they're going to have a, a very difficult time, more than they did with Chile. And Colombia didn't have a problem. Colombia didn't have a problem because Venezuela, uh, they had a tough time putting a team together, uh, with, whether because COVID or teams wouldn't release uh, some of the players. And, 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 and after... Watching Peru and, and Paraguay, I think those two teams are going to get better. Uh, it's, they're going to be very difficult uh, within the next uh, months or so when, when the uh, Carnival games uh, uh, continue to play. In the second match day coming up on Tuesday, we've got Argentina going to Bolivia. And we've seen some crazy results in Bolivia over the years due to the altitude. I think I remember Argentina with Messi losing 6-0 up there during a qualifier once, and they just looked like they couldn't move in the second half. 
this Bolivia team is all domestic players, and, and they, they seem to really struggle against Brazil. Do you think they have the chance because of the altitude, maybe because of a mental situation for Argentina up in Bolivia to, to potentially play better, maybe even get a result? Yeah, I think the oxygen is always an issue for the rest of the teams, with the exception maybe of Ecuador or, or Peru at times. But uh, not only they Argentina have lost uh, six nothing with Messi, but they all also have lost six nothing with Maradona on the field as a player and also as a coach. So uh, it, it's always difficult for Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, or Brazil. Uh, to play in uh, uh, the elevation is so so high. So even though the, the Bolivian team it's uh, it's inferior to Argentina at every level, but uh, the edge that they have is uh, that they played at home and and it's always difficult. You know, after 45 minutes, a lot of players they always complain that they can't breathe in the second half or their legs they can't move. So I think that's an advantage for them. We saw Colombia really do well against a Venezuela team that struggled. And one thing, I was watching that game. Now you have several Colombian players playing together at Everton, which suddenly is fun to watch. And you have several Colombian players playing together at Atalanta, which is also a very fun club team to watch. And at times we've talked about how if a national team has a lot of players who play together at club level, that can help uh, with the national team because there's a real understanding. And when you see Muriel and Zapata scoring goals up front just you know, for Colombia, just as they do with Atalanta or James and, uh, and Mina connecting on set pieces, um, do you think this Colombia team could get a big advantage out of having all these guys at, at, similar, at the same clubs? I think it's always a, a, an advantage when you have a lot of players playing in in the top leagues, especially in Europe, the top five leagues in Europe, because it's a different level. Uh, it's a higher uh, competition. All these teams, they always want to beat on the best teams, especially in Italy, like Atalanta wants to compete uh, with uh, Juventus and Inter, you know, all these this clubs, they have, they have all the money in the world, and Atalanta is trying to put together a strong team with unknown players that they cost little money compared to what they, the other clubs spend. The same thing in, uh, in England. Everton, it, it suggests, is a, a, a team with a lot of history, but they don't have the money that Manchester City and the other clubs they have. So, uh, But when you put together a, a national team with players that are, are a league that are so competitive, you make the national team better. And here's the other thing. Colombia has changed its style of play, uh, their formation. Uh, before, they used to just kick the ball into the middle and let the midfielders, you know, always look to the sides. Now it's a different story. The goalkeeper starts playing like very, very European style with the coach, uh, Carlos Queiroz. The central defender is the first one to touch the ball. Then he normally... Uh, he looks to the sides. If he doesn't have anybody open to the sides, he goes to the middle. And this where, that's where the midfield, the offensive midfielders come up. And you mentioned uh, James. So I think Colombia is going to be a very attractive team because of uh, now they have youth and they have talent players. We mentioned Atalanta. I wouldn't mind seeing Papu Gomez playing for Argentina. He, I think yeah. he could be a, a helpful player for them. 
let's talk a little bit about Champions League here. Uh, group stage starts on October 20th, and you're going to be broadcasting these games for the 26th season, as we mentioned earlier. And one question I have for you is for... Obviously, you guys are watched a lot by Spanish-speaking fans in the United States, but a lot of your broadcasts are on free television, you know, and, and not on pay cable. And in English, you have to pay money now for any UEFA Champions League, uh, whether it's on cable or on the uh, the pay platform for CBS. What would you say to soccer fans in the United States who maybe are English-speaking soccer fans, but might be able to, to might decide to see games for free on Univision. As you mentioned, we have all the games live. Uh, it's free in, in all of our channels. Uh, we have uh, open television and we have cable TV and we have the uh, applications, the platform, and everything is free. Univision, Unimas, Galavision, uh, to the N, the app, as I mentioned. And I think the non-Spanish-speaking fans, just come on over. You know, you don't have to spend money. I think they can enjoy. Forget about the language barrier. You know, forget about the language. It's a game. It's the, the sound of the atmosphere of, the, of what's taking place uh, in the field. Uh, don't let the language be a, a barrier. It, don't, don't make it an issue. Uh, just come and enjoy the games because, uh, uh, like I said, you, you will have the options. You know, you have the option to select because the games, all the games are being played at the same time. You have the options to go to one of those channels of the application and pick what you want to see. It's interesting. My own personal experience when I was a kid in 1990, uh, that was the first World Cup I watched. And I grew up in Kansas City. My family did not have pay cable TV. And so I watched every game of the 1990 World Cup in Spanish on Univision. And, and that was my way in. And it's interesting 30 years later now to see that if you're becoming a new fan to the sport in the United States and you don't want to have barriers to watching the games, this is the way to do it still. And, and so uh, I have a, a, a lot of affection for for Univision and, and what they've done for, for soccer in America that way, including now with Champions League. Um, I do, I'm curious to ask, you know, in what ways do you think a Spanish language broadcast of a game is different from an English language broadcast in terms of style, just how, how the game is called? You know, I think the English style is it's very similar, whether you do it in Europe or you do it in the United States or you go to Australia, New Zealand, or you do it in Africa or in, in Asia. Um, in, in the Spanish, it becomes very different because we have a different sense of passion for the game. I was born in Chile, but I grew up in Argentina and I came to the United States when I was 14 years old. So I brought into the United States that passion that I learned from Chile and Argentina, and I have always kept it. But at Univision, we have play-by-play uh, -play play announcers or commentators that they are from Mexico, they're from Central America, uh, they're from Venezuela, and, and from Chile, from Argentina. So it's a mix of passion and culture, uh, even though it's one game, but we all uh, carry uh, 
within ourselves, the way that maybe the, it's very difficult to implement that style in English. Uh, also because we get into more details, I think, uh, uh, on the style of play, technical, tactical. Uh, the English side is, is a little bit more stats, uh, more numbers. And I think one of the biggest things, and, and I'm, I'm quite sure you're probably going to agree, I think we have better pronunciation than the English uh, have in, uh, in their broadcast. <laughs> you mean you don't call, uh, you don't say Roberto Martinez or Raul Jimenez? <laughs> <laughs> no, here's, here's one of the things that I, I can't understand until today. When I used to work at ESPN, when we first started broadcasting in Spanish, I did hockey games, okay, hockey games. Wow. wow. And I had to learn the pronunciation correctly. So why not do it on the other end also, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm, I'm with you on that one. Uh, very interesting. Now, you were big into nicknames of players and coaches. You've been doing this for a really long time. And you have a nickname yourself, which is Panda. What is the story behind how you got the nickname Panda? Well, in 2002, Real Madrid played a game against Roma in uh, New York. It was on benefit for you know everything that happened in 2001. Um, so I went to the hotel, Real Madrid. I got invited by Real Madrid also to do an interview at United Nation because uh, Florentino Perez was going to present uh, a stadium to the uh, general secretary, uh, Kofi Annan. So I was there with the club. And, and after that all, we went to uh, have lunch and I was sitting at a table with uh, Solari and Cambiaso, and then one of my uh, uh, color analysts was walking towards me, and I used to call him, um, uh, because he had a, a very thick uh, voice, I used to call him a nickname in Spanish, right? Uh, and then when I called him that, Solari and Cambiaso started laughing, and then my co-worker says to me, what are you talking about? Look at you. You look like a panda. So then after that, everybody started calling me panda, you know? So. <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, so in terms of the nicknames that you've used over the years, after calling so many years of Champions League, what are your favorite nicknames that you have come up with for star players? You know, uh, I have a, a very long list of uh, a lot of players, coaches, um, even uh, team presidents, and uh, I think the list, it's a little bit more than 400. So, uh, but there are a few that are very popular within the, uh, uh, the fans. And, and if, we, if I mention some of those, I want to mention something that are close to people will understand in the United States. The, one of the first nicknames that I, that I put on a player was uh, Ronaldinho when he first came to play at Paris Saint-Germain. I called him Yaya Binks. Because uh, he had a long tail, uh, right? I don't know if you remember, he had a long tail. <laughs> and the way he celebrated was always like this. So when I saw the movements and, and, and that particular character, uh, Yar Yar Binks, and I started calling him Yar Yar Binks. And then he and I became friends. And, and, and I thought that he was going to get mad if, but I mentioned to him, and he just laughed. So um, <laughs> there's another one uh, that also, I think, it fits him well was Zinedine Zidane. Um, I had watched the night before the movie Harry Potter when it first came out. 
And then the next day, I had to call a game from the Spanish League, Real Madrid against uh, Deportivo La Coruña. And in that game, Zidane scored a beautiful goal. Um, and the first thing that came to my mind was, instead of calling him Zinedine Zidane, I called him Harry Potter. So, <laughs> and after that point on, everybody, even, even he knows that, uh, that I nicknamed him uh, Harry Potter. Uh, but there are other names also, like Carles Puyol, because of his long hair and his style of play. I call him Tarzan. Um, yep. Claude Makalele, that played for Real Madrid or Chelsea, I call him Anaconda. Um, mm-hmm. he, he will lead any, any, anybody in the midfield. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the favorite with the with the youth and then it was David Beckham. I called him Spice Boy. Remember when all oh, the big the Spice Girl? <laughs> so then then uh, David Beckham became the Spice Boy. Uh, Clarence Seedorf. He had long hair. Remember when he had all the threads? So yeah. I called him Whoopi Goldberg. Oh gosh! <laughs> and uh, Jab Stam, when he played for Manchester United, I called him the Mummy. And one of the mm-hmm, presidents, mm-hmm. one of the presidents of Barcelona, Joan Gaspar, his nickname was Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I love this stuff. I, and also, too, if, if people go to your Wikipedia page in Spanish, there's, there's quite a few uh, listed there. And it's a lot of fun. And it's something that I think is really cool that you've done over the years. Um, as, as far as this Champions League tournament is concerned, after the single elimination Champions League games that we had in August for the quarterfinals and the semifinals, we had some people say, maybe we should do this in the future, that we should not continue doing the two-leg home-and-away uh, situations in the quarterfinals and the semifinals. How do you see that? Would you like to, to go to the single elimination games in the future, or would you like to keep the two-legged elimination rounds? You know, this is something that uh, within UEFA, uh, it's been talked about, I think, in the last six, seven years. And uh, I think Karl-Heinz Rummenigge came out uh, just before it was announced that everything was going to be played in Portugal. And he made it clear that we have work. We have put a project that we want to have the semifinals and final in one city, one game, and that's it. And, and after viewing what happened in, 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 uh, in Lisbon, in, in Portugal, I think it made the, it made the tournament at that point, uh, I think the game-wise, uh, uh, more competitive and more attractive. So teams like, for example, Atletico Madrid wouldn't, you know, stay all the way in the back waiting on a counterattack or, you know, trying to uh, get a 0-0 or a tie or whatever so they don't score and then we'll see what happened in the second game. I think it made it more attractive for everybody. So teams were more open. It was, uh, 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 like I said, more competitive and, and because it's only 90 minutes plus, you know, it's not 180 plus. It's 90 minutes plus. And I will, I'll, I'll believe that it will get better and I think it will have a higher impact. Um, I think there are going to be more goals if they keep it this way. Um, and I believe that UEFA is working towards that. And, and, and I think it will be great if Rubenegan mentioned it, that they were looking into of doing this four or five years ago uh, within the semifinals and final. So don't be surprised that it happens sooner you know, than, than we expected. 
I wouldn't mind seeing it happen. And we've seen uh, Alexander Seferin, the UEFA president, say he's he would consider it. That said, it would bring in maybe less money because you're talking about fewer games. So I haven't seen UEFA too many times, you know, want to make less money, but it also could increase the interest, which could eventually bring more money. So who knows? Um, in terms of um, this Champions League, all six Champions League match days in the group stage are going to take place over just eight weeks this time. The, you know, you're going to have three straight weeks of Champions League, and then you're going to have the international break for two weeks, and then three straight weeks again right after that. What do you think the impact of that will be on the, on the competition, having all six match days in just eight weeks? You know, it's going to be difficult for every team, for every coach. Um, I think that the physical and the mental condition is going to be, these players are going to be drained. As you mentioned, you know, it's, uh, they, they have to play their own league. Uh, they have to play the Champions League. They have to play the Nations League. They have to play World Cup qualifying. There's traveling all over the place. And not only the physical and the mental condition on the players, but also the, the impact with the COVID-19 thing, you know, what we experience here right now, the injuries, you know, and also the, the quarantine time. Because uh, even though that, okay, you go play Argentina and then you come back, but every country has different laws and, and, and the quarantine is going to keep players away from a from weeks, so hopefully this doesn't happen. But but I think the physical and mental condition is going to drain them. One thing we saw in the draw was that Lionel Messi's team and Cristiano Ronaldo's team are in the same group, Barcelona and Juventus in Champions League. So we're going to see the two defining players of the last 10, 15 years play each other twice. And... Like, how excited are you about that possibility? What do you expect to see? Well, you know, it's been two years without the direct competition between Messi and and, and Cristiano. Um, I think for the past 10 years, they are the best players in the world. You know, either take one or two, whatever. Whatever you like, pick it. But to me, they're the two best players in the world today. it's going to bring a standstill to the world because we haven't seen him. Um, and now, now people want to see how Messi and this very difficult Barcelona team is going to face a Cristiano Ronaldo and a Juventus team that in paper, it looks stronger uh, with the qualities of players. Uh, Juventus doesn't have the, the, the issues, you know, with money issues or or with the precedent uh, issues, but uh, it's going to be a a high impact game that, like I said, it's going to be, it's going to, the world's going to stop. I don't care what you're doing, whether you're in a factory, whether you're in the office, no matter where, in a bus, in your car, something is going to be on listening or watching this game because, we are coming close to the end of uh, watching these two great players on the field. I want to ask you about Messi in particular because there's been so much turmoil between Messi and the club Barcelona, the the president there, Bartomeu, and just the whole directorship that is there right now. They finished 
obviously with an 8-2 loss to Bayern Munich at the end of the last Champions League recently. Uh, Messi doesn't really want to be there, he said, but he didn't want to go to court with, with the club that is the only club he's played at. You know, some people have called this like the last dance with Michael Jordan, but it's not quite the same thing because Michael Jordan's last team won the NBA title and nobody right now is thinking that Barcelona is going to win Champions League. What are you expecting to see with Messi and Barcelona this season? We've seen a couple of games so far under Ronald Koeman, but it's it's still hard to know exactly what this is going to be like. Well, they they haven't played a very strong team. Their opponents have, you know, haven't been uh, the best. But uh, I think uh, within the next few weeks, it's going to become difficult and more difficult for the club. Uh, one because they don't have a, a center forward. Um, there's still the issue between uh, uh, Griezmann, whether he fits or not, into the uh, Coleman's plan of style of play whether he and Messi get along or not in the locker room. So there's a bunch of issues that surround the club that is very negative. I think Messi is going to leave. Um, this is going to be his last year with Barcelona. I have contacts with very close relatives of him, and, and they have mentioned uh, that perhaps in January he will sign a pre-contract with another club. Everybody believes that he's going to England. He's going to join uh, Manchester City. I think it's the only club that can offer him uh, the salary and the dream of him to get close to lift the cup again, the Champions League Cup, one more time. So I think Barcelona, it's, it's, it's in a long run for uh, a difficult moment. Um, not only as a club, but uh, also in, uh, as a sports uh, competitive team. And uh, Messi is going to leave a big hole in the city. Do you think if Messi moves to Manchester City, we saw some reports that he might sign a contract that would give him some ownership equity in City Football Group and potentially play for City for two seasons maybe, and then go to New York City FC for a couple seasons after that. Do you see that as a real possibility? Well, the MLS did it once with David Beckham. So why not do it with Messi? Uh, so uh, we can have him here uh, uh, every week, every weekend, and uh, from one end of the country to the other. So a lot of youth fans uh, can really see him on a U.S. soil. Um, I think it will be a good business for Messi and for City as a, as a group. Just a couple more questions here with Luis Omar Tapia. Appreciate you taking this much time. Uh, if there is a favorite to win this season's Champions League, which club do you think it is? Bayern. Right now, I think it's the strongest team in the world. Um, they lost a great player with Thiago Alcantara. But the players that they came in, they are very good. So I think it made the team stronger. I think they can replace that position or maybe change a little bit in the style. If not Kimmich, why not take that position on the role that uh, Diego Alcantara had? So uh, to me, still Bayern. I think uh, it's my first option to pick us, us to continue to be the champion of Europe. 
There are a record 10 players from the United States in the Champions League group stage this season, including at clubs like Barcelona, Juventus, Chelsea, Leipzig, Bayern Munich, Manchester City. Why do you think we're seeing more U.S. players involved? You know, Greg, when I came to the United States back in 1977, it was kind of difficult to find players of the U.S. playing abroad. And uh, I, I think little by little then after that, uh, a few players went to play to Mexico, and uh, like Leon, Puebla, and all those teams, and and I've seen the growth of of uh, of this sport in the United States. Um, when I came here, it, it was difficult even for me. When I wanted to play competitive soccer, I lived in Connecticut. I needed to go to Massachusetts, or I needed to go to New York City to play competitive soccer. So. That's why I say I know the growth. It's it's huge. The impact of the sport in the United States, it's 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 unimaginable, and it's going to continue to grow. The dedication that the U.S. players have, the will to compete at a high level with the best players, it's making them better. They want to be there. They want to compete with Messi. They want to compete or want to be a teammate of Cristiano Ronaldo. They want to they wanna lift the cup that everybody wants in the world. So I think that's what's making them better. And also, w- when I came here, I mean, there weren't there any academies or there weren't any uh, youth clubs. You know, it was difficult. I, when I came here, I was 14 years old, and I had to play with 20, 20-year-old kids or, or uh, you know, older than me, six, five years older than me because it wasn't a, a club on my level of my age. So I had to compete with a higher level. So now I think there are more youth soccer clubs in the United States than there are churches. You know, everywhere <laughs> you go, there's a soccer club. Everywhere you look at, there's a mother, a father, you know, driving their kids to soccer practice. You know, it used to be I'm taking you to a football game, to a baseball game, to a basketball game. Now there are more soccer fields than there are any other fields for playing baseball. You know, it is pretty incredible just the way the culture has changed over time and we're seeing what we're seeing now. Um, I want to ask you about the quality of Champions League at this point. And, and I'm wondering if you think that the quality of the soccer in Champions League has become significantly better than the quality of soccer that we see at the World Cup. Yes, I think uh, I've always mentioned this. Every time uh, when they ask me this question, because I live it every year. I, I have lived it for 26 years in a row. I had the pleasure to call in the Champions League, and I see the best players in the world, whether they're from Asia, Africa, South America, CONCACAF, or Europe. Every year, those players, they compete for one trophy. They want to lift the Champions League Cup. You know, the Champions League Cup has become uh, an obsession for players all over the world. Um, while there's some that they dream of lifting the World Cup, that's every four years. But everywhere you go today, you ask a youth, a young kid, what trophy would you like to win? I'm quite sure they're going to say the Champions League. Um, I have the pleasure to call in the games of the, those same players that sometimes you're going to see them every four years. I watch them every year on a soccer field. 
It is pretty incredible. I, I, I wonder, you've been doing this for a long time, 26th season of Champions League. Do you still get excited when you hear the anthem of the Champions League? Yes, yes. Even, uh, even I have co-workers like Ivan Zamorano uh, that played for Real Madrid and Inter Milan. And I'm asking him, do you still feel something? No, I don't play anymore. Well, every time I listen to that, it's, uh, you know, it, my body, it uh, changes. Mentally, it changes. And I think it gives me more strength to, to call the game with a little bit more passion. One last question for you, because I see behind you on your wall, you have some Boca Junior shorts from, I think, when Maradona had his second uh, tour of duty at Boca in the 90s. Um, do you have any good Diego Maradona stories from your career? You know, Diego and I worked together on the 2005 uh, Champions League final in Istanbul. Uh, he was my color analyst and also Mario Kempis. They were my two color analysts for the final Liverpool oh, wow, and, wow. and uh, AC Milan. So that's that's why I said that day on that final, I was the nine and a half because I had the two greatest ten <laughs> until that time, you know, in the world. So let me tell you this. When AC Milan was beating Liverpool 3 nothing, uh, you know Maradona in England and the English clubs, they've always been a little bit more political than sports-wise, right? And uh, when they were, every time AC Milan scored, Maradona was like, going like this, oh, yes, yes, you know, let's keep scoring. But when it was 3-3, he was crying next to me. He was. <laughs> so I guess his so see tears were coming a little, out of his eyes. <laughs> his sympathies were anti-England, probably pro-Italy, though it's interesting because Milan had a, a, a quite a rivalry with his Napoli over the years. <laughs> no, but he was for, for Milan, so. That's great. That is great. Well, Luis Omar Tapia of Univision is starting his 26th season calling UEFA Champions League games. The group stage starts up on October 20th. Luis Omar, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Luis Omar Tapia as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Thank you.